We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is our Old Testament reading. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to be connected with you more fully. Those of us this morning who consider ourselves your children, we want to know our Father's love and care and receive your direction so that we can go about our days not like slaves in Egypt, but as those that you have liberated. And Father, as we look at something that has been typically thought of as law, as binding, as egregious, as difficult. Lord, I pray that somehow you would show us liberation through the act of simplicity, the act of not keeping and hoarding for ourselves. And through that, I pray that you would teach us how to grow, how to become mature, how to become like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our city uh, entered into the national consciousness through the series Portlandia four or five years ago, and it did so by a couple of pretty innovative skits. One was, of course, the dream of the 90s that got circulated all over the internet, but the other one was a satire on the farm-to-table movement. And in this one, Fred and Carrie are sitting at a restaurant, a kind of uppity, self-important restaurant. And they want to know a great deal about the chicken that they're about to eat. And so the server is very patient with them, very empathetic. It's like obviously everyone would want to know about where their chicken comes from. And so she pulls out a folder about this chicken named Colin. And apparently this hen is a hymn. They talk about it as a hymn the whole way through. And she gives them a picture of the bird and tells them about how it lived with this great, you know, uh, freedom, and it ran around and had friends and other chickens that it put its wing around and all of that, and says his name was Colin, and he's a heritage breed, he's woodland raised, and he was fed a diet of sheep's milk, of soy, and of hazelnuts. They're poking fun at a pretty important movement that's taken root in cities like Portland around the country, and it has to do with this idea of shortening the supply line between the source and the table, the ethics of how animals and soils are treated, and how one's individual consumption affects someone else's choices. And it's sort of answering a foundational question or asking it, does the way I eat, or backing up even further, do the choices I make in everyday life result in taking away resources from someone else? How are the workers on that farm that grew my food or took care of my food, how are they treated? Are they paid fairly? How are the animals that find themselves on my table treated 
before they're slaughtered, of course. How do my choices affect the environment? Am I taking away potential resources from others? And this all has to do with this basic question of taking and possessing. Are we exploiting others? Are we taking from them through the daily choices that we make? Well, how does this fit in with simplicity? How does this fit in with spiritual growth? Well, this has to do with the Eighth Commandment that says, Thou shall not steal, or you shall not steal. We're trying to identify a very basic and very daily spiritual rhythm that allows us to become a community of givers rather than individual takers. In other words, the idea of the liberty of having less. That through a rhythm of giving, of generosity, of considering others' interest in a disciplined and an intentional way that this is a critical pathway to spiritual maturity. So just three things. What is stealing? Why is it wrong? And what do we do about it? Are the what, the why, and the how? Well, first of all, what, what is stealing? And I don't mean to insult your intelligence here because it's not that complex of a question. Or is it? We had an extended national debate about the causes of the housing crisis and the Great Recession. Was it just the intersection of a host of unfortunate events or whether it was a breakdown of business ethics? What role did regulatory institutions have or should have had in reining in irresponsible lending that put profits, great profits, above the common good? And presently, all of the presidential candidates are addressing this issue of income inequality. Is it a benign consequence of the free market, or is it something more nefarious? And how do we address it? What constitutes stealing maybe isn't so clear-cut. With each of the Ten Commandments, there's a, a surface-level simplicity. Don't murder. Don't sleep around on your spouse. And if, this, if that was as deep as they went, then we wouldn't need to spend an entire sermon on it. But as Josh showed us last week, when we read the command in the larger context of Deuteronomy, and as we then look at how Jesus applied these commands, Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, he, how did he understand these commands? There's a deeper, deeper application that cuts right through each of us in this room. You see, just as in the third commandment, we're commanded to refrain from harmful words and using God's name frivolously, but we're also invited in that command to maintain integrity at a deep level, to not call ourselves Christians with hypocrisy. In the same way, do not steal has a positive corollary, not just of avoiding theft, but of seeking your neighbor's good as it concerns his economic or her economic well-being. Now, what is stealing? Three things. There's taking there's keeping, and there's hoarding. Real briefly, these three things. Taking may take the form of aggressive, violent theft, or it could be creative or spreadsheet theft. There's blue-collar crime, and there's white-collar crime. Theodore Roosevelt said, a man who has never gone to school may steal a freight car, but if he has a university education, he may steal the whole railroad. There's one who hides in the shadows to forcibly take something from someone with violence or force, someone that they can overpower. And then there's white-collar crime. There's predatory lending. There's bait-and-switch advertising. There's payday loans that 
predate on the poor and the indebted. There's CEOs that are hiding obligations and debts on balance sheets to artificially inflate the company's value. Now, in general, white-collar crime is much, causes much more widespread pain and yet is less regulated and less punitive are the, the laws against it. It's just an unfortunate downside of our free market economy. But blue-collar crime is punished with long, punitive sentences. But under the, under the microscope of the Eighth Commandment, are they really that different? And maybe both of these types of taking seems a bit foreign to your daily life, and let's hope so, either as the victim or the perpetrator. But what about instead of intentional, forcible taking, what about simply keeping what belongs to someone else? Is that under the Eighth Commandment as well? What if we're not really happy at work? We don't believe in our company's mission. We don't like our boss all that much. And so we, we kind of pad our hours. We don't work quite so hard. We come in and we grumble and we spend time doing things that we know we're getting paid to do, but that's not what we're getting paid to do. We're withholding work by laziness, by not trying hard, by not being thoughtful and creative. Aren't we keeping what belongs to someone else? I had a friend who worked in an auto parts warehouse, and I may have shared this with you before, but he drove a forklift for a summer, and they had these enormously high shelves where you got in your forklift and you went down and you got the auto part and took it back to the, um, the shipping department. And so he's this young guy, summer worker, and he thinks, I'm going to do the best job I can possibly do. I'm going to ship as many auto parts as I can today. And so the first couple of days, he just knocks it out. And about the third day, he goes down this aisle with his forklift, and he's going to uh, fill an order. And these two guys, who had been there for years and years, pull their forklifts up at the end of each of those aisles and turn it off and pull the key out. So he's stuck there all day with his forklift, not able to work. And he got the message pretty quickly that at this company, we work eight hours, but we only do two or three hours of work. You see, he was showing them up. He was actually working the whole time, and they didn't like it. And by their not working, they were actually taking from the company's profits. What about just ideas at work? The project gets done. Someone has a great idea. Do you give appropriate uh, recognition to that person? Or are you comfortable with kind of sharing in the glow even though you didn't really work on the project, you're part of that. Are you careful to make sure people receive the recognition and the acclaim for the work that they've done? Or maybe let's talk really critically here. What about the digital world? What about what's on our computer? Are all the ones and zeros on your computer really yours? Or are you sort of borrowing from someone else? Did I go too far with that one? Well, at the risk of offending everyone, we talked about taking, we talked about keeping what belongs to someone else. What about hoarding what could help someone else? Hoarding theft. This is stealing from those in need by keeping too much for ourselves. Could we break the Eighth Commandment by withholding generosity to others, by holding on to our resources when others are in need? We think of ourselves in this way as owners rather than stewards, that what we have worked for, what we have, what we possess is ours. It's not given to us in trust 
for the good of someone else and for the common good. And so we justify extravagances and great luxuries when the people next to us in our church family are hurting and struggling. You see, faithfully following the Eighth Commandment isn't just not stealing, it's generosity. It's seeing your resources through the lens of the people around you and their needs and their burdens. Well, what is stealing? Now, why is it wrong? Why does God care? Well, for one thing, there's a terrible social cost to it. There's a corruption tax on everything that you buy because of laziness, embezzlement, insurance fraud, intentional waste, payoffs. All of these things are built into the cost of the products you buy every single day. And there's lots of religious reasons that it dehumanizes the person that you're taking from. And it's an assault on God because you're looking at, I'm looking at my resources and then thinking about the future and saying, you know, I don't trust God to come through for me and so therefore I need to hoard more than I actually need for that terrible hypothetical occasion. I've got to take care of myself. But notice in the context of Deuteronomy, the primary reason of why it's wrong is that it's enslaving. It's harmful not only to the victim, but to the perpetrator. You see, to the person that's breaking the law, they're doing it to their own detriment. And that's why God says don't steal. It's not simply protecting the victim and protecting the other, but it's so that you can enjoy your liberation through the gospel, through God's work that He has done for you. Do you notice the preamble of the Ten Commandments? I'm the God who rescued you out of slavery. These commands are the means by which to enjoy and experience that rescue. The sins that are listed aren't simply wrong, but they're prisons. They're strongholds. They're things that keep us from enjoying God and enjoying our world. Stealing, in other words, is evidence of a deeper bondage a lack of freedom. The thief is in bondage to the object of their affection. They can't resist it because they've staked their happiness upon it. Stealing, we must see, begins in the heart. It begins with envy. It begins with greed. It begins with coveting. It begins with an unquenchable desire to possess something for ourselves. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not the root of all evil, as it's commonly stated, but it's the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is just a thing. Money is amoral. But the worship of money is the root of all kinds of of evil. You see, no one loves the actual money. No one loves the actual bills. I guess it's possible that you would just sit and count your money like Scrooge McDuck, but no one actually loves the physical paper. They love what it gives them access to. Money gives us access to other things we want. You see, money might be a near idol, but admiration, freedom from worry, comfort, power, these are far idols. These are our ultimate idols. Money is a thing, but it flows towards those things that we want most. 
And when we have lots of it, we get to buy lots of the things that we love most. You see, money isn't its own evil, but it's the feeder of evils. And what's the result of pursuing wealth, of taking and grabbing as much as we can? Well, maybe, and let's be honest, it's the alleviation of certain burdens, certain kinds of anxieties that we have. And possessing an adequate bank account is not evil. Possessing enough for our needs and even needs for the future and having savings is nothing wrong with that. For as Woody Allen said, money is better than poverty if only for financial reasons. It's much better to have money left over at the end of the month than it is to go into debt to pay for basic necessities. We can all agree on that, correct? What we're talking about is hoarding and seeking our own interest over and above the interest of the person next to us and over and above the interest of Jesus and His kingdom and what He wants to do through your money. Those who pursue wealth as a goal in and of itself pierce themselves with many griefs. Remember, the point of the command is to release you from prison, to release you from bondage. And what Paul is saying is that what looks like freedom, that is having more and more, is actually a false sense of security, and it will tyrannize you. It will make you unhappy at the end of the day. Well, what is stealing? Why is it bad? And what do we do about it? And here I want to talk just about ourselves. I don't want to give any grand plans for the larger economy, but just us, our own economy, our own budget, our own bank accounts. Well, what we need to realize, first of all, is that thou shalt not steal isn't enough. And God knows that. That's why He gives us the preamble. Because of who God is, because of His grace, because of His love for you, do not steal. Do you see grace first, then the law. Knowing the rules is not enough, and nor can any economic system prevent stealing. They all have loopholes to exploit. Law is not enough in itself to keep us from stealing, and it's also not enough to keep us giving generously and sacrificially. We've got to move beyond just changing our relationships with the rules to changing our relationship with God Himself. Paul goes on in that passage and he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, and get this, nor to put their hope in money, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides with us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, whether or not you're a Christian here this morning, I would argue that this passage has tremendous relevance to you, both the Deuteronomy passage as well as this First Timothy passage. And it has a, a potential for a very powerful liberation in your life. Ernest Becker calls humans the homo poeta. That is, we're meaning makers. We're storytellers. We assign meaning and value to things in our world that have centering power in our life. And that these things, whether you're a Christian or not, these are our God values. These are the things that we stake our happiness upon. These are the things that we give our lives for. These are the things that we get up and go to work for every day. These are God values. 
and money steps in here and becomes a God value. It becomes something that we look to for liberation but becomes enslaving and burdening on us. And that's what we in the Christian tradition would call a belief system, a worldview. Prosperity, comfort, possessions are the meaning makers in our lives. And in effect, they become our gods. And therefore, commandment one, before he gets to all the other commands, is you shall not have any other gods before me. Money can become a god, and therefore do not steal. Do not live your life for the God value of possessions and wealth, but live instead for me. The Eighth Commandment really is about simplicity in that it's trying to limit the number of gods that we serve. It's trying to direct our worship to one God rather than three or eight or twelve or however many we go around serving each and every day. We're identifying our God values and seeing how they're actually leading us down a dead end, a cul-de-sac, and saying, I don't want to go there. I want to be liberated. I want to be set free, and therefore I'm going to serve one God, and it's the God who rescued me out of slavery. Jesus' famous words when he tells us that no one can serve two masters is really a commentary on this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's not do this or else, it's do this and be free. Do this and be liberated. Having other gods in the Christian faith is not about bowing down to pagan idols or statues or altars, but it's the profoundly serious business of betting one's life on finite centers of value and power as the source of our meaning, as the source of our identity, as our worth and as our hope for the future. That's what idolatry is. That's what worshiping more than one God is. It's, it is the profoundly serious business of placing our ultimate security in things of finite value. Simplicity comes when all other finite centers of value are forsaken for the God who says, I will give you what you need to be free. In fact, I will give you myself so that you can be free. The gospel, you see, which sums all of that up, is an undeserved, unearned gift. In a sense, you're taking something that's not yours, and God says, that's okay. I want you to take this. This is a gift. I am giving this to you so that you no longer have to steal, so that you no longer have to put your value, put your hope in finite centers. Jesus comes into the temple And he overthrows the money changers. Why? Because they're stealing space from the Gentiles. They're stealing space from the place that the Gentiles were given to worship. And then, how does he end life? He's crucified between two thieves. The word for stealing in the Hebrew has fraud and secrecy attached to it. But what does the thief next to Jesus do? He comes out of hiding. He's no longer a fraud. He's saying, I deserve what I'm getting, but this man does not. He finally tells the truth. He finally stops taking. He finally comes out in the open. He comes out of hiding. He's still a thief, but he's no longer a fraud. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, 
fellow thieves. <laughs> this is the gospel that we need. This is what we need to hear. We need to come out of hiding and say, yes, I would rather seek my own interest than the other interest of others. Jesus, would you help me? Would you change me? Would you convince me that the things that I'm pursuing so often are dead ends and cul-de-sacs? And would you give me the liberation that I can finally put you on the center, put you on the throne of my life? Thieves like you and me are not without hope when Jesus is near. The gospel is for thieves. It's yours for the taking. Your life is so much more than your things. So take hold of Jesus and be set free. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we've talked about difficult things, as I've addressed different ways that we may go about stealing, stealing, I pray that no one would feel scolded or shamed, but that we may see in these applications some of the ways that we do, in fact, steal, not only from others, but from our own happiness, from our own blessedness, from our own sense of well-being, and from our relationship with you. And I pray that you would radically redirect us radically alter the way that we go about life so that we don't need to steal because we have the gift, the abundance of your love. Lord, we pray that we would rest in that. And as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, would you make us ready to receive your grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.